Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. We have to hope that this current political situation is not the permanent resting state of American politics. If this is what American government is going to look like henceforward, then uh, we are going to be a corrupt oligarchic regime, whatever we do in terms of the design of policy. Hello, and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on Vox Media Podcast Network. Before we get into the show today, uh, this is not an exact count, but depending on how you count, last week or this week or somewhere around here is the 100th episode of this podcast. Uh, I'm not doing anything extremely profound to celebrate it because I am not good at planning and did not did not get my act together in time. But I do want to say that, that I'm really grateful to, to all of you tuning into this. Doing this podcast has been one of the really, really rewarding projects of my professional career. I've I've enjoyed it just really, really immensely. And, and to everybody who's come on and given this time and to all of you who who come in for an hour or two hours a week and, and join in in these discussions and send me questions and thoughts and feedback, uh, it's been a really, really, really wonderful experience for me. Um, and, and I'm grateful to all of you who make it something worth doing and, and something that I can do. So uh, I hope you all get something out of it too, but but know that know that it means a lot to me. So for what it's worth, thank you for getting us to 100. Um, may there be many hundreds more. My guest this week is Paul Krugman, who you have probably heard of. He is a Nobel Prize winning economist, a New York Times op-ed columnist, a professor at CUNY Graduate Center. Um, he is a, a brilliant individual. I have thought about this podcast for a long time. Uh, on October 24th of 2016, so the final days of the 2016 election, if you can remember those, Paul tweeted, when this election is finally over, I'm planning to celebrate with an orgy of dot, 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 wait for it, serious policy discussion. Won't it be great? <laughs> and so I emailed him back then and I said, great, well, why don't we schedule a podcast in a couple of weeks and we can have an orgy of serious policy discussion? And we did. But but he was thinking that Hillary Clinton would win. Many people were thinking that, including both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, as it turned out. But then Donald Trump won and serious policy discussion was not the order of the day. So it, it took us some time to, to get to the place where things normalized enough to have this conversation. But, but, but this is a conversation about policy. We cover a huge range of issues from taxes to inequality to universal basic incomes to jobs guarantees to climate change to monopolization to whether robots will lead to joblessness to whether we should worry at all about deficits to 
tons. It's a it's net neutrality, uh, universal child allowances. We cover a lot of policy topics, uh, a lot of policy topics that have been undercovered and underdiscussed of late. So it's a lot of fun. Um, I learned a lot. Uh, there is virtually no topic on which Paul Krugman is not worth hearing out on. And I hope you all enjoy it as much as I do. Um, as always, please check out our other podcast, The Weeds, where I have serious policy discussion every week with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff um, and others. Check out Worldly, where we talk about foreign affairs. I think you're interesting, where we talk about culture. Uh, there's lots of good stuff on the Vox Media Podcast Network, uh, and I hope you are enjoying all of it. And as always, you can email me with feedback on the show, ideas for guests, whatever it might be, at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, that is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. All that said, here is Paul Krugman. Paul Krugman, welcome to the podcast. Uh, hi there. So let's begin with taxes. I, I was talking to Glenn Hubbard, the, the Columbia economist, who was George W. Bush's chief economist, and he made a point about taxes and tax bills that I thought was interesting. He said, the way to assess a tax bill is to ask, if this is the answer, what was the question? So if this bill that just passed the Senate the other night is the answer, what was the question on taxes Republicans were trying to ask? Well, I think there's the question they'd like you to think they were trying to ask. And there's probably the question they were actually trying to ask. So in practice, this looks a whole lot like, God damn it, we've got to pass something. Uh, otherwise, we've been in control of the government for a year and we haven't accomplished anything whatsoever. A lot of what went down is like the old uh, yes minister joke, right? Uh, we must do something. This is something. Therefore, we must do it. Mm -hmm. But look, there's, there's a real issue, uh, how big an issue is in dispute, that the U.S. has a pretty high uh, nominal face value tax rate on corporate profits. The headline number is higher than than in other countries. Doesn't translate into higher overall taxes on corporate profits because we have all of these loopholes and exclusions and exemptions. But clearly, that's got to be a little bit unhealthy. Probably has some distorting effects on incentives and a move to fix that by bringing the the headline corporate rate down to something comparable to other uh, advanced countries is something that in principle has a lot of support even from democratic leading economists. And yet, so let me let me bracket this because I think there are two pieces of this bill when I began talking to people about it. There's the corporate side of this bill, which as you say, has a theory to it. And, and we should talk about what that theory is and, and whether this is going too far with it. Uh, and then there's everything else in the bill, pass-throughs, individual tax rate, estate tax repeal, all of that. And one thing that I found when I was talking to Republican economists was that you would find a lot of people defending some version of what the corporate side does, which is bring the, the rate down from 35, where it is now, to 20 percent. And they were very excited about that. And then I found that there was not much excitement about the individual side tax cuts, not much excitement about the pass-through stuff, that people felt that was politics because you needed to tell people they were getting a middle-class tax cut. You needed to buy off these different corporate and, and, and small business lobbies. You needed to give maybe Donald Trump a tax cut. And so we were spending whatever trillions on that as a way of buying these big tax cuts for corporations. Yeah, all of the individual stuff is by way of a, a buyout it's either to say, have something in there so you can say to ordinary voters, look, you get a tax cut in 2018, or to be able to say to certain wealthy, powerful interests, uh, such as the Trump family, hey, we've got a, we're carving out a, a whole big new loophole for you personally. And uh, estate tax, 
is a is a big payout. All of that is is by way of of bribes. And the funny thing is that because they can't bypass the filibuster unless the thing is deficit neutral after 10 years, all of the individual stuff is a temporary bribe. It's 10 years of stuff, uh, or in most cases, less than 10 years of stuff thrown at various interest groups for no particular policy purpose. And then supposedly it all disappears, leaving you with a corporate tax cut. How would you design a maximally pro-growth tax reform bill? What would your bill look like if the only question was, let's increase U.S. economic growth over the next few decades? Oh, wow. My general principle is that taxes on all of these things just matter far less than conventional political discussion has it. In our political discourse, we talk about taxes and incentives all the time with very little grounding, very little evidence from economic history that they matter much at all, at least in the ranges we're talking about. It's an issue that would be way down the list of concerns, except for the fact that there are powerful interest groups who think they can gain at the expense of the rest of us by getting particular changes in the tax code. So taxes as an issue is just way, way, way overrated as an economic policy. Believe it or not, Paul Ryan's original proposal, uh, which was now, I used up several bottles of painkillers trying to understand it, but it's actually, it's, it's a sensible proposal, which has backing from democratic-leaning economists as well, but it would reshuffle the burden of corporate taxation, probably in a good way. If that were actually on the table, I probably would be saying, yeah, I'm, I'm in favor of this as long as it's deficit neutral, but it's, the actual proposal looks nothing like that. So, yeah, it would be better to have a, a system where the U.S. had a lower headline tax rate and fewer loopholes. And that would probably mean that we'd get somewhat more foreign investment and it might raise our growth rate by a small fraction of a percentage point over the next decade. So what are then the top few things on the list of things U.S. should be doing to make its economy perform better? Well, in terms of things we can do right away, we still have a desperate infrastructure uh, hole. We desperately need infrastructure. And it's crazy not to be spending more on rebuilding and, and reinforcing, you know, all kinds. Uh, the, the obvious stuff uh, like roads and, and bridges, but also less obvious stuff like water systems. Since the federal government can borrow uh, inflation adjusted at almost zero, uh, we really should be spending a lot on that. And that's got to help economic growth. Um, a big improvement in our educational system, that's going to make a take a long time that almost by definition takes you 20 years before it really starts to show up. But clearly, we're not doing a very good job of educating large numbers of Americans. Things like child health care, we've improved that, although that's now very much at risk under this Congress. We've improved child nutrition, but that's also very much at risk under current regime. And those things show up in the economic productivity of those children when they become adults. So a lot of child-oriented uh, policies would be part of the uh, the plan. And then beyond that, you know, we can think about, we can try to ask what might enhance uh, innovation. But, you know, the dirty, not-so-secret thing is that economists don't know a whole lot about how to accelerate long-run growth. I mean, we know a lot about what to do during a recession, if only politicians were willing to listen. But if you ask, you know, why do some countries grow faster than others? Uh, my old teacher, Bob Solo, said that those um, uh, discussions always end up in a blaze of amateur sociology, that in the end, we don't really know very much. You just try and do a bunch of things right and hope that it pays off. 
So at the top of that list, you brought up infrastructure and you mentioned the U.S. can borrow for very little money. So why not use that? And, and you know, you don't even necessarily need to pay for the infrastructure right now. There's been around this tax bill a debate. Democrats have been yelling hypocrisy at Republicans who are adding a trillion or more onto the debt over the next decade and probably more after that to pass this bill. This is after Republicans spent all of the Obama years saying the debt is the biggest problem facing the country. My colleague, Matt Iglesias, who, of course, you know, had an interesting piece the other day where he said Democrats need to stop caring about Republican hypocrisy on the debt and realize that they are right, that debt and deficits don't matter that much. The bond markets are not freaking out over this tax bill and that they should stop paying for as much on on their own terms. Do debt and deficits matter? Should Democrats pay for all this stuff? Should they not? I mean, how, how do you think about this outside the question of politics and inside the question of just what level of fiscal responsibility is actually necessary? Well, I think we are... The United States is in a range where we really should not be worrying about debt. I mean, it's true that we have a higher level of debt, uh, you know, relative to GDP than historically we have seen during peacetime. But there's a lot of evidence just, you know, we can see with the markets now, but we can also look cross country and we can say, hey, you know, Britain spent most of the 20th century with debt levels well above uh, what we have now never seemed to have any problem with that. Japan, uh, you know, has debt of 200% of GDP. And uh, the people who've uh, bet against Japanese government bonds saying, oh, they're, they're, there's bound to be a crisis, people call that the widowmaker trade because so many people have lost so much money betting that the markets are going to reject Japanese debt that I don't know if anybody actually committed suicide over it. But it's it, it, it turns out that advanced countries... Politically stable countries, I don't know, are we one of those? But let's assume that we are advanced and politically stable, have a tremendous amount of leeway on, on debt. There's, we're nowhere close to anything that looks like a red line. So if there's something we ought to be doing, we shouldn't let the deficit impact deter us from doing it. So there are all these smart people or people who seem smart, talk like they're smart, who are very worried all the time about debt, very worried about U.S debt to GDP going above 100%, you know, who who create these deficit panics and these debt panics. What is wrong in their theory? I don't think there's a theory. I mean, if you actually do the numbers and you ask, what is the burden on U.S. finances of a debt of 100% of GDP? And you know, what does it take to stabilize the ratio of debt to GDP, which is the the right number. How how big a primary surplus, how big an excess of, of revenues over spending other than on interest do you need to do to keep that from being a problem? And the answer is essentially nothing, right? We have an economy that's growing. We have a little bit of inflation. The interest rates on our long-term debt are pretty low. It just, if you actually do the simple models, and I'm a big believer in simple models as a guideline here, they say that the kinds of debt levels that we now have are really nothing at all to be paying much attention to. So it's not a theory. It's it's a feeling. It's a sense that somehow there must be a penance, that there must be, we must pay a price for, for these debts. And I think a lot of the deficit and debt stuff just comes because it sounds serious. I mean, there are a lot of distorting factors in our policy discourse uh, and this is probably not the worst of them, but stuff that sounds serious tends to have a disproportionate role. 
My sense on the Democratic side of the debate is some of it is playing off of the Clinton years when the idea was interest rates were high, government borrowing is crowding out the private market. That made it hard for, for private players to, to invest and to grow the economy. And Bill Clinton brought down the debt and obviously good economy helped and other things. But Clinton brought down debt and deficits that brought down interest rates or let the Federal Reserve bring down interest rates and yada, 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 good economy. Now, obviously, interest rates are low now, but but my sense is a theory is at some point the markets turn and they spike. And is your view that that theory is just, it's not even really a theory, it's just sort of a, an intuition? Yeah, it's just an intuition. It's very hard to tell the story. You know, short-term interest rates are controlled by the Fed. So long-term interest rates are, to a first approximation, an average of expected future short-term rates. So how exactly does the level of the debt get into there? Uh, it's, uh, you, you have to have some kind of story where there's a, an investor strike, uh, that forces you to raise rates, which can happen if you're Greece and you don't have your own currency. It can happen if you're a small economy that's desperately afraid of the inflationary consequences if your currency should decline in value against other currencies. But to the United States, there's just, or even even Japan, we've seen this in the case of Japan. Uh, it's very hard. It's, you, you try and tell a coherent story about how that this alleged debt crisis can even happen. I've been through this. I've given presentations at the IMF uh, where I say, uh, look, I believe for a country that looks like the United States, a debt crisis is fundamentally not possible. And people will say, well, I can't quite fault your logic here, but I don't believe it. So it, it really is it really is more about a gut feeling than it is about any kind of theory. So one of the things that the Trump administration did in the past couple of weeks was Ajit Pai, the commissioner of the FCC, reversed or, or announced his intention to reverse, I should say, the Obama administration's rules that regulated Internet service providers under Title II, which allowed them to enforce net neutrality regulations. Do you have a strong view on net neutrality either way? Just the general sense that for a democratic society and also just for a society that is open to innovation, to new ideas, level playing fields are, are really important. Think about one of the great historical unifying things that we did very early on in our, in our country's history was to establish a postal service where the cost of, of sending a letter was the same no matter who was sending it, no matter uh, how far you were sending it. Uh, that was, I mean, you can imagine some, you know, if, if, if there had existed uh, right-wing think tanks at the time, they would have given you all kinds of reasons why this was bad and distortionary and we should let the market work. But probably turned out to be a really, really good thing for fostering both national unity, communication, ultimately, I would guess, innovation. So we've done very, very well. The success uh, at having the internet as a as a common carrier, where companies providers are not allowed to discriminate among different users, this is something that's very much not broke. So why try to fix it? I think the answer some people give to why try to fix it is regulation has costs that we can't predict. The government doesn't know what's coming down the road. There was a, a piece by Ben Thompson at Stratechery more or less making this case that if the internet doesn't appear too broken right now at a moment when over time people argue about how much net neutrality has been enforced, but his argument is that it's been reasonably light touch regulation, 
then we should worry about it on a case-by-case basis going forward and only implement heavy regulation if a problem proves severe and present, not do so preemptively. I mean, that would be great if we had platonic philosopher kings setting policy. Who is actually going to have access in making these case-by-case decisions? Who's going to be able to get in the door? Whose phone calls will get taken? And the answer is going to be, you know, not you and me. It's going to be exactly the interested groups. So this is one of those cases where there's a tremendous amount of potential uh, differential advantages that can be conveyed by regulatory decisions. And it's not transparent. It's not going to be open to the public. Uh, Not really, whatever they say in principle. And this is exactly where rigid, inflexible rules uh, you know, they may be worse than an idealized regulator would, would pursue, but maybe a whole lot better than what a, a regulator who is actually responding to uh, big campaign contributors is likely to do. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. What's your opinion on universal basic incomes? I don't have a strong view on UBI, I mean, I'm in favor of strong welfare state, strong social safety net. The main concern I have, I think, is that there's a little bit of, uh, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs, in my mind here, a family's needs for assistance vary greatly. And uh, UBI, uh, which tries to cover everybody, it's a lot of money. To If you're not going to be actually significantly cutting back on what the neediest households are receiving, then it's going to, the whole thing is going to cost quite a lot of money. Now, I, I'm, I'm a slightly mixed feeling because I do have the, on the other hand, we, there's a lot to be said for programs that are as automatic and as universal as possible just on the political economy so that people don't have to make decisions, uh, don't have to set rules. It, it just It's just there. I mean, the great thing about Social Security and Medicare, uh, the question of who is entitled and what they're entitled to is extremely simple, and that has helped, probably helped their political durability. But UBI, I don't think people advocating it have fully thought through how we're going to deal with the problem of, of differential needs. So uh, I've been thinking about UBI a lot because I happen to be at a weird intersection of people doing a tremendous amount of work on UBIs. My, my wife is writing a book on it. Dylan Matthews at Vox has a lot of interest in that in it and does a lot of reporting on it. And one of the things I've begun to think about it is that 
It is hard for me in America. I think there are different arguments made for UBI in other countries and as a foreign aid tool and, and things like that. But in America, UBI doesn't seem to me to be a very good way of solving policy problems. Um, if you're concerned about people losing jobs from automation, there are better, more targeted ways to solve them that would end up with the people in need getting more help. But a UBI makes sense. Uh, the, the way in which it makes sense seems to me to be much more utopian. If you believe that we've developed a society that is too much built around work and that in a hyper-advanced economy in the year 2030, 2025, whatever it might be, you should be able to have your basic needs met and spend your days doing art or spend your days playing video games or spend your days doing whatever, that, that you should have that autonomy, that a UBI is a way of instantiating a major cultural change. First of all, that's a vision of the future that is far from clear. I mean, it's, it's very far from clear that, that we're actually going that way. How big a deal is the robot revolution? Are large numbers of workers about to become obsolete? We can maybe talk about that again in a few minutes. The point, I think, right now is that it's hard to imagine, given the current political climate, um, a worse argument to to make, right? If if you're someone who thinks that the U.S. social safety net is wildly inadequate compared with what it should be with what it is in other advanced countries, as, as I do, to say that what we need is a, we need a system that will let people who just don't feel like working not work. Oh, my God. Uh, that's that's almost like fulfilling Aaron Hatch's uh, dreams. I mean, it, it happens to be, I think, useful right now to be able to point out that the, the social safety net programs we have right now very much do not do that. I, you know, the major programs are Medicaid, which mostly serves children, elderly, and disabled, uh, and workers who work perfectly hard but just can't get jobs that come with health insurance. Uh, food stamps, which is similar. Earned income tax credit, which gets at least rhetorical support from both sides of the aisle, precisely because it is tied to work. So this does not seem like a really opportune moment to be saying, yeah, let's have a program that lets people choose to produce artworks instead of, instead of working at, at their day jobs. I think there's a there's some point to that. You can imagine that as a as a uh, as a society that we might someday want to have. But maybe you know, wait first, see whether the robot revolution actually does the things that people are suggesting it might, and then let's talk about it. So that that to me is one thing that is interesting about this debate. I, I think that again in America, UBI proponents need to be willing to engage, and some of them are, an argument that is much more foundational. Because what, what you just pointed out, I think, is important, but it's also not something that we should fully take for granted. The American view of the deserving and undeserving poor has in many ways been pretty damaging. And, you know, certainly in the aftermath of welfare reform has meant a lot of people left behind. You know, certainly I think one could imagine a world less built around the cultural emphasis on work that we have. But changing that is so much harder an argument than the normal policy arguments we have. It means reclassifying who is sympathetic and who is not. It means changing some of our most foundational views. And, and when you add in American attitudes on race and uh, all the different things that create resentment, American attitudes you know, between cities and rural areas, between the rich and the poor, it, it's, it's an interesting policy as a sort of symbol of imagining a very different society. But 
I feel like people much too often want to make operational and pragmatic arguments for a UBI when the sort of world in which it makes sense is a much, much more shifted idea of what a state, what a society, what a rich society owes its citizens and what is a a reasonable and respectable way to live out your life. And you might want to think a little bit. I mean, if if people are going to be pushing for the notion that it's okay for some people to simply accept that they're not going to be able to get a a job that's worth doing, uh, you might want to look at other countries' experience. Uh, Britain, pre-Thatcher, actually even some ways into the Thatcher years, um, had an unemployment benefit system that was effectively you allowed you to decide to live on the dole. Uh, it was even a song. I'm going down to Liverpool to do nothing uh, with my, my UB40 in my hand. And uh, that ended up being a very unpopular system, even in Britain, which where the politics are you know much less, uh, or at, at that point anyway, were much less racially polarized and so on than they are here. So a system in which in which you can actually point to substantial numbers of people who have simply chosen not to work. It's going to take a long, long time to persuade a significant block of American voters that that's okay. An interesting step down from that, though, which does focus on a cohort that we believe is sympathetic, which does focus on a cohort where there's less of a question between deserving and undeserving, is the idea of a universal child allowance, which a lot of other countries have. Uh, Where do you fall on that? Very much. If there's one thing we would imagine that Americans can agree on, it is that children should not be impoverished, uh, should not be deprived of essentials, both you know medical care, nutrition, and and there's a lot of other stuff because their parents happen to be poor or unemployed. Back uh, before the election, uh, when we imagined we were going to have a rather different regime, I was pushing for child-centered policies as being the principle, the next frontier after healthcare, because that's one where, uh, at least for now, uh, even even conservatives give lip service to the notion that children should not be punished for their parents' failings, whatever their nature. So sure, if there's a child there, there, there ought to be sufficient money for that child to have options to have to have the decent things in life. I remember the heady days at the end of the election when it seemed like there would be the space for the next frontier after healthcare because Democrats and, and the Clinton administration would just build on Obamacare and and the, the sort of great challenges would be elsewhere. But now it seems to me that with Republicans undermining and sabotaging Obamacare, repealing the individual mandate with nothing to replace it, and and also showing that there is going to be no truce in the healthcare wars, that that issue is going to continue to be at the forefront because the system, the next Democratic president is going to inherit, is going to be quite fractured and wounded. Is the lesson of the past couple of years that the Democrats should stop coming up with these technocratic public-private hybrid compromises and just go full expansion of public programs? We, we need to look around a bit at what the environment looks like. I mean, and and uh, the political environment, the next time a Democrat becomes president, could be very, very different. The fact of the matter was that in 2009, you know, single payer was not going to happen. Uh, I mean, even, even uh, 
uh, a Medicare buy-in for people uh, in the, uh, at, at 55 turned out to be not have a su- sufficient support. So the only way you were going to get anything was with this kind of public-private hybrid, this, this uh, Rube Goldberg uh, device. It, and um, I think we need to say that that, at least in the first phase and in the um, uh, Obamacare debate, it turned out that there was significant durability. Now, what we may be left with by the time all of this stuff is you know, behind us, whatever this Congress does, whatever Trump or, or, <laughs> or his successor, you know, God knows where that's going, we, we may be left with something where, in fact, Obamacare has turned into mainly uh, a Medicaid expansion. And um, that's uh, not the worst thing in the world. Uh, it, it, and it may mean that that's where you go when we try to reconstruct, when we try to undo the damage instead of saying, okay, let's go back and restore the individual mandate and, and make the exchanges better and increase the subsidies. Uh, maybe we'll be looking for just a big expansion of direct public provision of insurance. I don't know. It's, uh, it, I think it's a little too early to tell exactly which way that's going to be going. But I don't think it was a mistake to do it the way it was done. It was really important to pass something, uh, something that would do a lot of good, which we did. But the political universe is altering as we as we sit here, and possibly in ways that might mean that in 2021, it'll be an environment in which true single-payer is not completely off the table or something that that is much, much more Uh, aggressive than the Affordable Care Act becomes possible. What I think is going to be likely, never say it's going to happen, but is going to be likely, is something I call single-payer by attrition, which doesn't ever quite get to single-payer probably, but but nevertheless, that the next Democratic president, there's going to be no screwing around unless they have 60 Democratic votes in the Senate with trying to get to 60. This is not going to happen. And so what can you do through reconciliation and what can you do that builds on what you've learned this time? And it wouldn't surprise me at all to see a Democrat come in with a pretty simple bill that says, okay, Medicare is open to anybody. You can buy it with Obamacare subsidies. You can have it as a strong public option on the exchanges, or you can just have it as its own free floating thing. Uh, Medicaid's subsidies go up a little bit higher. Uh, The subsidies in general go up a little bit higher. And we're done. People can opt into this Medicare or Medicaid programs. Uh, They can buy into it with or without subsidies. They're cheaper because they have these big government pricing powers. Eventually, maybe employers can come into them too. And just what you see is a slow movement and transitioning in the marketplaces into these programs so that, you know, in year three, the system isn't that different. But in year 15, it's quite different, potentially. Well, you know, if you look at what's probably, you know, assuming that they actually do, I think we're, it's not a completely done deal that this Senate bill happens. Uh, it were, as, as we speak, we're discovering they appear to have made a $300 billion error. Um, but what's $300 billion dollars between yeah, friends? Uh, but that actually puts a big, you know, uh, anyway. Um, uh, it, means pro- it means that the House can't simply pass the Senate bill. Uh, which means they have to have another vote, and so there's there's stuff that can still happen. But but assume that it's something like it goes through. At that point, the Affordable Care Act becomes pretty close to a single payer system that doesn't cover everybody. But 
the your premiums go up, but because the uh, subsidies are tied to the cost of a, a middle-priced plan, I think silver plans, it means that for a lot of people on the exchanges, they can get a bronze plan for free. So effectively, they just get insurance paid for by the government. And then there's Medicaid. So the bulk of the people getting coverage under the Affordable Care Act uh, post this particular apocalypse will probably basically be on government insurance. So we will, in fact, have gone, uh, it'll be covering fewer people, but it, it will have turned into something that is pretty much just single payer with a few extra bells and whistles that make it more expensive and less efficient. But you can't, for most people, though, you can't buy into the Medicaid program unless you're under a certain, I mean, you can't buy into it at all, but you, you can't, I can't be making 250% of the poverty line in Alabama, um, find that I don't have an affordable option on the exchanges and, and purchase my way into Medicaid. No, but you can go into the exchanges if there's the Medicaid gap. We're getting way too far into the weeds. But by and large, the, the subsidies for the exchanges are designed, are set so that the price of a silver plan does not exceed a certain percentage of your income. And with the prices of those plans going up, that means that actually the subsidies are enough that less generous, incomplete insurance is fully paid for by the federal government. So, you know, they're, right now, I mean, the people who are trying to push, you know, get the word out that you can still enroll are pointing out that we now have a, some very large number of people who can, in fact, get, are not eligible for Medicaid, but are, in fact, eligible for free health insurance um, under the Affordable Care Act through the exchanges. So there are going to be some unintended consequences uh, for even, you know, the Republicans aren't even carrying out their sabotage very uh, coherently. And so the end result may be that that you have a lot of people who basically have become accustomed to the government paying for their health insurance. What country in the world do you think does healthcare the best? That's complicated, right? Uh, and you know it, more than I do, uh, but we both worked on this issue. And, you know, the interesting thing I would say is that there are there are three solutions to universal coverage. Uh, you can do uh, government provi uh, direct provision, uh, the NHS model. You can do single payer, uh, the Canadian model. Uh, you can do uh, regulation and cross-subsidies, uh, Swiss or German models. Uh, um, and they all work. A country that wants to provide universal health coverage can do it through any one of those. Uh, the Government provision, the direct socialized medicine, seems to be the cheapest, and they're with no measurable degradation in the quality of health care, but people get annoyed at waiting lists. The uh, mixed stuff, the uh, regulation and subsidies is the most expensive, though not nearly as expensive as ours. The country that seems to be able to deliver a system that that has minimal weights, minimal inconvenience, and is still remarkably cheap as France. But we don't quite know how they do that. It's all so Gallic that we can't quite figure out how they're managing to, to pull it off. But look, I mean, I would say that, that they're all okay. German healthcare is okay. French healthcare is superb. British healthcare, despite all of the complaints, is actually okay. I would take any any of those for the United States. Of course, we have we have versions of of, of all three systems in our own country because we have Veterans Health, we have uh, Medicare, which is single payer, and we have Obamacare. So, and and by the way, all all three of those kind of work. 
So if we've made the decision that we're going to cover everybody, then we can have a technical, technocratic discussion about which route to choose. But it's not clear it matters all that much. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. During the election, Bernie Sanders really showed that the idea of free college, college with tuition is effectively free at the point of service, has a lot of resonance. I'm curious what you think of that proposal. The details of his proposal, um, I'm trying to remember exactly what was in it, but wasn't, wasn't that great. But the idea that college education should be free or at least very cheap it definitely is something we ought to be doing. It's a, a kind of a, a direct assault on America's idea of itself, on the American dream, to have college education be financially out of reach for bright kids who chose the wrong parents. And so something like that is very much what we ought to be doing. I have a little bit of a no, uh, almost tribal loyalty to that idea because I now sit at the City University of New York, uh, which is not free, but is a lot cheaper than uh, than private schools. We have uh, work now, Raj Chetty uh, has done work showing that the CUNY system is just off the charts in terms of promoting upward social mobility. Uh, you know, if, if you a poor kid who gets into Harvard or Princeton is going to do quite well, but not very many of them do. And it's uh, uh, CUNY and some of the California system that do remarkable things in providing opportunities. So yes, uh, in fact, if I could go the whole way, I would say not just uh, free tuition or minimal tuition, but a lot of financial aid. In, in many cases, the biggest obstacle for a working class kid going to school is the the wages he or she could have been earning meanwhile. So definitely, we should be making this as uncontingent on family economic status as possible. To argue about the the underlying principle rather than the details, the debate I heard about the free education, free college proposals has a lot to do with whether you should prize universality or progressivity in your proposals. So Hillary Clinton would say, hey, look, it might sound nice, but then we're using our resources as a country to help Donald Trump kids potentially go to college for free um, and they don't need it. We should we should focus our resources on, on, on the kids who need it most. Bernie Sanders would say both as a matter of societal values, but also as a matter of political stability, making something universal uh, makes it stronger, makes it easier to protect, gives everybody a stake in its continuation um, You know, in the way Medicare has versus, say, Medicaid. How do you think about that universality versus progressivity debate? I was, it's funny, I was more sympathetic to uh, the Sanders-type position a few months ago than I am now. I mean, they, this is an old line among the inequality, social welfare 
people that you know poverty programs are poor programs that if you make it a means tested if you make it something that's dependent dependent on family resources that it that diminishes the support now one of the things that's been startling about the health policy debate has been that it turns out that medicaid is a very popular program we used to us just assume that medicare was untouchable because everybody gets it but medicaid which is for the poor uh would have a lot less popular support but polling suggests that Medicaid actually has a lot of popular support and that uh, threatening to take it away is a was a big liability for Republicans during that health care debate. So it may not be quite as true as we thought it was. Uh, on the other hand, the whole, well, do we want to be giving free college to Donald Trump Jr.? Those arguments almost always, when you actually do the math, they turn out to be pretty trivial. That it's it's like, well, why should we be providing Medicare to wealthy people? And the answer is, well, any kind of attempt to means test Medicare ends up saving you very, very little money. There are just not many people up there. And uh, uh, and Social Security, uh, when people say, why should you know, Warren Buffett be getting Social Security? Well, there's, you know, there's not very little. Actually, Social Security is, has got a lot of stealth redistribution in the way it's designed, so it's already kind of doing that. But the political case for universality looks a lot weaker to me now than it did a few, you know, uh, uh, would have a year ago. Uh, but the uh, financial case for non-universality, I think, is also pretty weak. There's another big change that seems to me to be happening in democratic policy circles. It seems to be a genuinely new thing compared to where liberals were, say, 10 years ago, where monopolization and industry concentration is becoming a pretty central point of economic analysis. Uh, there have been fights about this in democratic think tanks. You now have the Open Markets Institute. Elizabeth Warren talks about it. Chuck Schumer has begun talking about it. Liberals are, are beginning to cohere around the idea that a major economic problem is that industries have become too concentrated and too many players have become monopolists in their own in their own sectors. Do you think that is correct? I think it is. You know, from the standard of are we absolutely sure that this is a central issue? No, but we're kind of eighty percent sure. Uh, there, there's a bunch of different pieces of evidence that point in that direction. Uh, first of all, uh, measures of concentration, conventional measures of industry concentration have gone up. Um, second, uh, we have seen since about 2000 what we were not seeing before, which is uh, a substantial shift of income away from labor towards capital. Before then, inequality was about growing inequality of wages. But over the past 15 years or so, it is increasingly about um, in capital, you know, it's become it's become uh, kind of more like the old uh, vision of capital versus labor. And uh, if we try to understand that rising capital share, uh, certainly increased monopolization is one uh, important possible source. And what ties in with that, the third piece of evidence is this remarkable coexistence of incredibly low costs of capital. Uh, corporations can borrow for only slightly more than the federal government needs to pay. Uh, yet private investment is 
if anything, a bit low by historic standards. What could explain that? How can companies have free capital and not really want to invest it? Well, that's what a monopolist does. Monopolist doesn't want to increase capacity because uh, that the only way to use that capacity is to cut prices, and the monopolist doesn't want to do that. So between uh, those three things, uh, the direct evidence of growing concentration, increasing capital share of income, and this mysterious wedge between what appears to be the private sector's assessment of investment opportunities and the cost of capital, uh, it makes sense to think that monopolization is a big is is a big and growing issue. Do you think that we have policy levers that we understand how to use on this? And 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 what I mean here is that obviously the the direct approach here is antitrust. And when I talk to people about these questions, even people who are pretty bought in on the monopolization arguments, I find a lot of discomfort with using antitrust much more aggressively than we have. Um, I don't see that many people who are out there calling to break up Google and Facebook, um, to to begin you know wielding antitrust powers in in new areas. What what do you think this analysis implies we should actually do? Oh, I think it does still point you towards antitrust. We had pretty potent antitrust policies for 35 years, uh, 45 years, uh, from from the New Deal up to uh, up, up to the Reagan administration. We do know that it's possible to do it, and. When somebody says, "Oh well, the world has changed," and it's, it's you know, they, I'm not. It's, that's not at all clear to me that it's it's all that much harder to do. There is a lack, I think, of other obvious mechanisms. I mean, you if if you have the chance to do something that is pro-competitive, if you can do something where removing regulations that protect existing monopolies is is an option, that's a real that that's something that that you can try to do but there's probably not enough opportunities like that to to make a, a a really big difference by all means let's try to think creatively i haven't seen a, a brilliant additional set of suggestions uh, but we do know that antitrust enforcement used to be strong went away and we woke up one morning and realized hey monopoly looks like it's a pretty big problem which suggests that that maybe it's not all that complicated an issue now everything complicated by the fact that we currently have an administration that you cannot trust not to use uh in fact to put it the other way you can pretty much count on any discretion that's given as a political weapon so you know a, a revitalization of antitrust policy would is contingent upon the restoration of a justice department that is committed to uh, to not being exploited for partisan advantage. Uh, but you know, let's as long as we're assuming uh, great things, we can assume that that uh, that the the next uh, Democratic administration actually restores integrity to the DOJ. But but this is something that I think is actually an interesting question across a, a pretty wide variety of policy areas right now. There's this old line that that hard cases make bad laws. And I know a lot of people looking at the Trump administration and saying, well, all of these places where we wanted to create new rules, to create more discretion, to make Congress work more smoothly, now that we know the American people might elect somebody like Donald Trump, we should really rethink that. And on the other hand, I was talking to a political science the other day who made the point to me, he said, there is really no answer in a democracy 
for how to run the country if people make bad decisions. Like you kind of just have to hope they don't. And and I will say, I think Trump was a bad decision. And you can even argue that people didn't make it because he lost the popular vote. But nevertheless, he's in office. And so I struggle with that. I, I struggle with how much I should update my priors on, you know, should there be a filibuster or should antitrust be stronger uh, just to hopefully hamstring uh, a future administration or or even, I guess, this administration. It has certainly made me more concerned about an illiberal administration maybe helmed by somebody much more effective than Donald Trump in the future. And on the other hand, to run a country with as many problems and as many questions as ours from such a defensive crouch seems like a a truly, seems like it brings up dangers in other ways. Yeah, I think there you don't have to go to a corner solution on either side here. There's a lot to be said for uh, programs, systems that run on automatic, that don't require uh, that there be either a well-intentioned or a, a competent administration to make them work. So, I mean, if it, thinking of example, we, um, we had very few problems during the financial crisis with conventional commercial banks because the FDIC doesn't require good leadership to, uh, to, to do its job. Um, on the other hand, not everything is amenable to that kind of solution. And if you're going to be afraid to do anything that requires administrative discretion, that requires that there be reasonably intelligent, honest leadership at the top, uh, then that rules out policy in whole swaths of the public sphere. So we've got to, we have to hope that this current political situation is not the permanent resting state of American politics. If it is, you know, none of the rest matters. If this is, if this is what American government is going to look like henceforward, then uh, we are going to be a corrupt oligarchic regime, whatever, whatever we do uh, in terms of the design of policy. Should the next administration, or even this one, consider a jobs guarantee? Well, um, that's an interesting question, one I haven't really thought through as thoroughly as I'd like. Um, there is a lot to be said for it, because one thing we have learned is that safety net programs that make sure that you have food and, and medicine, what they can't do is they can't give you dignity. And dignity is really important. It matters a lot. People want People want jobs, not just uh, support. There is the counter argument. First of all, we may not be able or willing to provide jobs that are sufficiently well-paid and, and, and meaningful that, that they will supply that dignity. Uh, and we, we may, in this economy, how many jobs that a generic worker who's lost um, his or her job, mostly his, I think, in, in in terms of what's politically sensitive, um, can can be put to work at and actually feel they're doing something. So we can you know, be, I'm a big nostalgic liberal and get all nostalgic about the WPA and the CCC, but even, even construction jobs use a lot fewer shovels and a lot more technology than they used to. So the answer to that is willing to think about it. I don't think we figured out how to do it in a way that would actually work, but might be on the agenda. And again, a lot depends on what actually happens. You know, where, where, where is the robotics thing really going? Are we actually heading for the elimination of large numbers of jobs to robots or are we, uh, are we basically kidding ourselves? 
I'm so glad you mentioned that because I was about to bring us back to robots and the elimination of large numbers of jobs. And I'm going to do it this way. People have this intuition that we're seeing this massive pace of technological change, so many jobs lost to automation, so many, in fact, that it's a totally reasonable supposition to say robots are going to take all the jobs or a huge proportion of the jobs in the coming decades. And yet productivity growth has been lower in recent decades than it had been in the 20th century. What is your explanation for why productivity growth is lower than our impression of technological change would suggest? We've been here before. Maybe that's the starting point. Uh, if you were sitting around 1990, uh, everyone was talking computers and IT uh, already, and there seemed to be, there was a big restructuring of you know, office work. There was lots of things were going on. Uh, and productivity growth was lousy. And uh, Bob Solow famously said, you can see the, the uh, technology revolution everywhere except in the statistics. And we then, there was a story, uh, the famous paper by the economic historian Paul David, who pointed to electrification in the late 19th and early 20th century, where uh, basically factories shifted from using steam engines in the basement to using electric motors. And you would think that would be a big productivity advantage, but it took about 30 years before that really began to pay off because it turned out that it wasn't just, what you had to do was not just you know, replace the equipment, but you had to rethink the how you how you, how a factory was organized. You had to say, hey, wait, we don't need a, a six-story building uh, uh, to minimize the the drain on the, the, the pulleys and, and, uh, and, and crankshafts. Uh, we can have a big open space, flat building, and, you know, so that it that there's a period of adjustment to new technology. Um, so that was the story that people were telling around 1990. And around 1995, it seemed to be, hey, that's this is right, because we did have a big takeoff in productivity as people figured out what to do with information technology. Trouble was that productivity spurt then kind of fizzled out about 10 years later. So it would look like a one-time thing, and we... Uh, so maybe that's not what it's really about. Uh, and now maybe, so at this point, we have two stories. One is that we have a whole new set of developments, machine learning, you know, artificial intelligence, which is not really, but anyway, the stuff that is much closer to AI that we used to think. But we haven't really figured out what to do with it yet. And so give us time and you'll see this transformation. Uh, that's one story. The other story is that all this stuff is really not that big a deal because it doesn't affect what most people actually do for work, which increasingly is healthcare. Uh, and uh, it ain't going to show up that it, it's going to be a bust. And the reason that we talk about it so much is it's it's uh, it's sexy. It's uh, and it particularly it it. It's very visible to those of us in the uh, chattering classes. So we can see that, uh, you know, I haven't listened to a voicemail uh, in years because now uh, speech recognition is good enough that the, the text uh, version of, of my voicemails is, is, uh, is actually comprehensible. Uh, but maybe that doesn't really, how much does that affect what nurses do and Basically, the, the nurse is the prototypical worker of the 21st century. Um, and I don't know the answer to that. I think if you ask me, will the next 20 years see a huge surge in robots taking our jobs? Or will we look back and say, what was all that about? 
uh, I actually don't know the answer. There are a bunch of people in the technology industry, Bill Gates and others, who say, listen, this is just mismeasurement. Actually, this is rapidly advancing living standards and rapidly advancing productivity, but productivity statistics are, are broken in ways that make them particularly unable to see what's happening. Do you do you buy that? Um, no. I mean, yes, uh, true economic growth is higher than measured, which has always been true. You know, it has always been, has been true for the past century at least or more. I mean, if you think about things like uh, 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 health, I mean, the, the, uh, uh, the improvements in what can be treated the, uh, are, are not fully captured. But a lot of those big improvements came a long time ago. The, um, it's, it's the same thing. We look at third world countries now, and many of them appear on standard measures to be no richer than they were in the 18th century, except that life expectancy is 20 or 30 years longer. So there's clearly something that has has changed that we're not capturing. But that has always been true. There's always been a bias of, you know, some fraction of a percentage point. Uh, in terms of actual, I like to think in terms of uh, prosaic activities. Actually, well, I, I always like the, the, uh, the kitchen test. Uh, think about uh, walking into a kitchen, you know, now, uh, assuming that you are like me, a uh, reasonably competent kind of slapdash cook. And okay, so we have a modern kitchen. It's got a bunch of clever appliances. And uh, if you walked into a kitchen from 60 years ago, so a 1957 kitchen, uh, you would be annoyed. Where's my microwave? Where's my toaster oven? Where's, you know, but you would basically know what to do and feel able to function in that kitchen. Suppose that you, someone from, 18, from 1957, walked into a kitchen from 1897. You'd be horrified and have no, how do, how do people live like this? So if I take, you know, that particular metric, uh, technological progress over the past 60 years has been substantially slower than it was over the previous 60 years. Now, maybe, you know, maybe all that changes in the future. But I, I don't think in terms of the way, in terms of what most people do with their lives, most of their day, that we actually have seen uh, a dramatic increase in living standards that's not being captured by the numbers. There's a hypothesis out there, which I don't know how one would prove, but I find it at least compelling as something to think about. And, and I associate it with Cal Newport, who wrote Deep Work, and uh, there's a someone at the Bank of England named Dan Nixon who wrote a good piece about this recently. But there's an idea that we have invented a lot of things that have made us both more distracted and more distractible, that it might feel like you turn on your browser and there's all this amazing stuff and there's Facebook and there's Twitter and the way you communicate has changed and there's email and a million things that are that are profoundly different. But that if you really watch what you do in a day, you look at your phone 70 times and you get distracted by Twitter and the overall net impact is, yes, a lot more information is at your fingertips, but your ability to focus and to think and to, to come up with big insights and jumps is actually being harmed by all this, that these companies are so good at addicting us to things that and then we turn around and say thank you but it's actually not um not a net positive for human beings creating big new things it's, it's actually a net negative 
uh, and that the analysis here would almost be like if we invented a bunch of new drugs and everybody got addicted to these drugs, uh, the fact that people like something doesn't necessarily mean it's good for them. Uh, I'm, I'm curious if you find anything of value in that idea. It's possible. I mean, we, we uh, within economics, we're finally, finally taking behavioral economics seriously, uh, which says that people don't actually necessarily make good decisions. Um, and, and then at the same time, we're saying, well, look, this technology hugely expands people's choices. And so that must be a good thing. And actually, uh, you know, we're, we, we've just been in the process of learning that expanding people's choices doesn't necessarily make for good things. And it's certainly possible that some bad things happen. I don't know. I have no idea how we, we quantify uh, all of this. And I, there's something that makes me deeply uncomfortable when people suggest, for example, that the decline in male labor force participation in the United States is because all of these guys are sitting at home and playing video games. There may be a few of those, but that's probably not really what's happening. It's mildly much more dire than that. Uh, so don't want to go too far with it. Uh, it's definitely true that the, let's put it this way, the, the marginal product, oh, I was trying to talk plain English and I referred to economies, but anyway, the, the, uh, the actual contribution to human welfare of, of a huge increase in the information at your fingertips is probably a lot lower than, you know, than we'd like to imagine. Having a hundred times as much information doesn't mean that you do a hundred times better. It probably doesn't even make you do 10% better in making decisions. On the third hand or the fourth hand, I don't know how many hands I've, I've had here, uh, shouldn't neglect that there are some, you know, some of these things that people do are, uh, are in themselves a source of pleasure, of welfare. I'm not quite sure how I survived without being able to watch concerts on, on YouTube. So this, it, these, some of these things are really a, uh, are, are real positives, even if they may be slightly disruptive to office work. Nobody really knows. Why don't you think that having 100 times, a million times as much information at our fingertips doesn't lead to bigger advances in how well we do at our jobs or, or even to some degree in our lives. That that feels to me like an unintuitive thing. No, I don't think it is because we are, we are boundedly rational creatures. We are not able to process all of that. If you have... Um, you know, a vast amount of, of, of information, you quickly get to the point where you can't tell which parts of it you should pay attention to, what are the things that matter. Often you just want, you know, to know what, what your choice is. And uh, this is kind of off, but it's, it is a kind of slightly funny story. When I, when I moved from Princeton um, to where I am now, where, where I have two employers, uh, the New York Times and, and the City University, I could have gotten health insurance through either one. And the uh, New York Times offers, this is our health insurance plan. And CUNY offers you a choice of 13 different plans. And so I went to, and I sat down, I thought, I, I can figure this out. I could not make out which plan was better, which one made more sense. So I went to Human Resources and said, can you help me understand the differences between these plans? And they said, no. Uh, so I did not feel advantaged by having this uh, vast increase in choice. It was actually just a source of anxiety. Now, think about that as a much bigger deal. It's, it's uh, 
um, are people actually better informed from having access to Facebook and Twitter and, uh, uh, and Instagram than they were when Walter Cronkite uh, said that that's the way it is? Uh, that's not all clear. So then back to the underlying question to, to our technology discussion, will automation, will AI lead to mass joblessness in, let's say, the next 40 years? 40 years, maybe. I mean, at some point, yeah, I, I guess I do believe that in the end, there's nothing ineffable about human consciousness. And at some point, somewhere, uh, you reach the point where a machine can do everything a person can do. Uh, now, it used to be that that point just kept on receding ever further into the future. And the last few years, we've seen enough progress in previously intractable stuff, um, like speech recognition, like translation, um, that it's no longer quite so obvious that it's it's uh, something that, that will not never happen in your lifetime. It's, uh, now, of course, it's very hard to even imagine what that looks like. We're, we're not at all sure which things, which kinds of jobs go first. It's by, we used to assume, though, you know, the high skill, the things that require a postgraduate degree are the ones that will survive. But those, in some cases, may be easier to automate than, uh, than uh, uh, changing a, a patient's bed linens. So it, it may be very, very different from the way people want to imagine it. But 40 years, maybe. 20 years, I think, quite unlikely. I, I think a lot about this, and I have tended to come down on what maybe one would call the more optimistic side, although it depends on how you feel about possibly the benefits of a world where human beings don't need to do that much work. But I think about how many things we do right now that it is clear a computer can just do, or it's clear that YouTube can just do. I mean, you you work in education. There have been consistent predictions, and not just predictions, but but hopes, organized campaigns, moneyed interests trying to make this happen, that every student at a college is going to get taught by a YouTube video. They're going to have a couple professors who are incredible at explaining what they do and have very, very high production values. And everybody will be in these massive online courses. And then, you know, the whatever have study sessions on a forum. And it just keeps not happening. Or, you know, yoga uh, is something that you can certainly just watch a YouTube video on. But people love going to studios. Studios are, are popping up everywhere, even though there's never been more ways to learn yoga without going anywhere or talking to anybody. And it just seems to me that human beings are incredibly good at finding things they want from other human beings. And we're also good at imbuing that work with value. Um, I, you've all know Harari, who's the author of Sapiens on this show a while back. And his big concern is that, you know, there's not going to be anything of value for people to do. But when I think of the difference between my job, right, blogger, writer, guy who talks to people about policy and farmer, I mean, we have so many fewer people who do jobs that are essential for human life. And yet we've imbued a lot of these jobs with a lot of value and the people who do them feel value and dignity from them. And that just seems to me to be something that I, I could be wrong, but it, it seems to me to be something that we're going to keep doing. And I don't really see why that would stop or in what way just simple improvements in AI or speech recognition or, or any of the rest of it would, would interrupt that process. Well, historically, it's always been the case that 
uh, we find other things for people to do. You know, we, we replace some things. Uh, you know, if you said, okay, you know, take America in 1880, where two-thirds of the workforce is in farming, and we say we're, we're going to end up with a, a world in which we essentially have no farmers, uh, what are all those people going to do? And, well, we found things for them to do. And so, historically, it has always been the case that we found something. And that keeps going for quite a long time, I think. You're right. Uh, there, there are a lot of things for which the, the human touch seems to be essential or as, as, as other uh, kinds of jobs disappear, but as overall incomes rise, uh, people are willing to pay for the human touch, even if it might not be absolutely essential. So there's, there's going to be a lot of stuff out there. It's, uh, uh, as again, the, the, the biggest growth area of employment right now is essentially healthcare or social assistance. We're, uh, very, very important to have people and not just even if you had a, uh, a a robot that could come to a patient's bedside and and do all of the necessary sheet changing, I think people would still want to actually have physical human nurses on on the spot. The point is, I don't think of this as being a really pressing issue. The disappearance of all work is still quite a ways off. Possible disruption of large parts of employment which has happened in the past, that's a possibility. What happens if self-driving trucks really become a, a thing, which looks like a serious possibility in the not-too-distant future? And that's several million workers uh, who will suddenly find that the world doesn't want what they've been doing for, for a living. So those kinds of disruptions are real. You and I both spend a lot of our time doing policy analysis and, and policy journalism of, of different kinds. And I've been thinking a lot lately about what is the role of that and what are the mechanisms through which that works. In most of the periods I've done this, and let's use the Obama years as just one example, one thing that, that was true then was that the people making policy, they cared about policy journalism, they read policy journalism, and when people who did that work well said, hey, um, this isn't going to work. Uh, you know, the experts in this field don't think this policy is going to work. They felt bad about that. They felt concerned about that. They wanted to change it. And it isn't just that they wanted to do that among people they agreed with. Um, the Obama administration was obsessed with getting the approval of David Brooks, of Ross Douthat, of Tyler Cowen. I mean, they had a sensitivity to policy analysis that was meaningful and created uh, an avenue through which that kind of work could could, could have an impact. The Trump administration obviously doesn't, but but it's not just them. The Republicans in Congress don't. Paul Ryan doesn't. Mitch McConnell doesn't. They really don't care, it turns out, at all, including, by the way, oftentimes from the right. Uh, there's been tremendous amounts of criticism of their Obamacare bills, of their tax bills. Um, and if they cared, the pass-through provision wouldn't be in there. If they cared, their health bills would have looked totally different. What What is the role of policy journalism and policy analysis, be it from from us, from think tanks, from wherever, in an era when the decision makers do not actually seem to care if the weight of the evidence is they are getting policy wrong? Um, I asked myself the same question. We still, for the time being, at least have a two-party system, and the Democratic side still does care. So to the extent that they are formulating their responses, they they, they are listening. Uh, it's so it's not as if there's nobody out there. Uh, at the moment, they don't have very much power, but 
you know, maybe that changes. Um, but yeah, if you if you are in a world where the people who make actual decisions are simply not interested, uh, you know, where their, their view is, if I want your opinion, I'll tell you what it is, um, then um, what what good are you and I? I have a little bit of occasional agonizing. Um, I, I in my case, it's you know I have a, a a very flexible portfolio at the times, and I can really write about anything. And most of the time, I opt to stay fairly close to serious policy analysis. Not always, obviously, um, because I think that's something that where I bring something to the table. Uh, what do the readers want to hear about? Uh, at the times, it tends to be they want reaffirmations of just how bad Trump is, uh, which, you know, I, I, I agree, but that uh, doesn't seem uh, like I'm adding very much in doing that. They, there is a problem. Uh, what is the point of policy analysis if, uh, you know, if, if, if a policy analysis falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? And that, that is, I, I don't have an answer to that. I am genuinely afraid, though, of a world in which the mechanism through which policy research and analysis works is that one of two parties is sensitive to it. Um, I, I'd i be curious if you think this is different than it was in the Bush years. Um, I, I did some of this coverage in the Bush years, but I was, uh, for the most part, a very, very junior reporter, and some of them just in college. You were uh, a more prominent, uh, more prominent figure than... Did you, you, you talked a lot about how much they lied in their tax bill uh, back then. And that was, as far as I can tell from your work, a radicalizing period for you. Do you feel that the Republican Party of that era was substantially different in this regard from the Republican Party in this era? Or is the tendency among some liberals now to speak highly of Bush in comparison to, to to Trump and that Republican Congress in comparison to this one, is that just a kind of opportunistic nostalgia? Um, it's a little of both. I mean, the uh, as some people have said, the amazing thing is that each successive Republican president manages to make the previous one look good by comparison. Um, and so uh, Bush I would like was, to hope we've hit the event horizon on that. <laughs> God knows. Uh, wait for President Roy Moore. Uh, but anyway, the Bush people did not want to hear serious analysis uh, from you know, from the likes of me. They were clearly not going to pay, pay any attention. They did, however, I will say that they had highly politicized but still reasonably competent people, certainly on the economics front, uh, who were probably playing some role in disciplining what they did. It wasn't, and that was certainly true on the foreign policy side as well. So although they, you know, massive screw-ups uh, in, in Iraq and elsewhere, uh, there was still some role for people who knew something. Um, and that has now, they were already moving very strongly in this direction. So the, the, the anti-intellectualism, the disdain for policy expertise was something that has been developing really since the Reagan years. Um, and, uh, but it, it is a, it, it, it didn't emerge full blown. It's been a, a progressive degradation uh, of the, of the discourse over the, over the decades. Uh, so, I mean, there were some incredible uh, 
you know, I was I was in the Reagan administration, you know, sub political role, but I was staff at at the Council of Economic Advisors, and there were some incredible ignorant goons uh, floating around in that administration, even in you know 1982. Uh, but it just keeps getting worse, and the uh, so this is this is new. It you certainly should not start thinking of George W. Bush as having been a good president or having had responsible policies. He certainly wasn't, but it wasn't as crazy. I mean, Bush never uh, tried to claim that tax cuts would pay for themselves. That was considered to be a bridge too far, even for a conservative Republican administration. So there's nothing like what's happening now. Bush would never have had, uh, you know, the... uh, uh, the Treasury Secretary claiming to to be basing his decisions on a study that it turns out doesn't exist. So we we, we keep on taking a, a step deeper into the abyss here. To have this conversation itself makes you sound extremely partisan, which is a frustration with it in a way in which it gets ignored. But but I also think to not have it is to miss the pretty fundamental dynamics driving our our country right now. And 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 so I want to phrase a question to you this way. I do not think the weight of the evidence, either empirical or anecdotal, suggests that there is a huge personality difference between individual liberals and conservatives on these issues of how they absorb information and and, and how much they trust their folks. Um, there's a lot of experimentation on this about, you know, when you give people uh, ideas that support their priors, how much do they believe them, how much do they disbelieve ideas and and sources that don't support their priors. Uh, You and I both get, I'm sure, a lot of emails from extremely uh, intense liberals, and I do not find those emails to be all that different in their nature and in what they're willing to believe and in what they want to hear from the emails I get from extremely intense conservatives. And yet liberal institutions, uh, the Democratic Party as one, but much more broadly, the the think tank community, the academic community, which leans liberal, the journalistic community that is you know left of center, uh, has been much more closed off to some of the just bullshit that has infected the conservative community. There seems to me to be an asymmetry in the responsibility of the core mediating institutions. Um, conservative media is a much less responsible thing than liberal media. It just is. Um, I wish that it weren't. I, I would. I would like that it is not, um, but it is. And I do not have a great answer for why the institutional path of conservatism has taken this route. I do not have a good answer for why, in many, although of course not all cases, conservative institutions have ended up being more open to conspiracy theorists, have been more willing to throw their support behind men like Roy Moore, have been more willing to, you know, buy into the climate change denialism, whereas the liberal institutions for the most part, you know, have not uh, accepted or tried to hype up, say, you know, unfounded fears about GMOs. I I think that there's a a really important difference in the way these institutional uh, ecosystems have evolved. And I do not quite know why it is, and I'm curious if you have a hypothesis. I do. Uh, it's not fully fleshed out, and it's not carefully tested. But look, what we know from the political scientists is that if we look at the two political parties, they are very, very different organisms. The Republican Party is pretty much a hierarchical, top-down institution. Admittedly, you know, it, it can uh, have 
insurgents like Roy Moore or something uh, who appeal to the base. But, but or Donald Trump. Or Donald Trump. But at, but at a fundamental level, um, the the Republican Party is is monolithic. Uh, people who are professional Republicans are uh, or who are in positions of power basically have lived their entire professional lives working for that movement, working for that party and and its affiliated uh, institutions. Uh, the Democratic Party is a coalition of interest groups. Um, and precisely because it's a coalition of interest groups, there is some space for critical thinking to say, hey, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. I mean, actually, in a way, among the interest groups is policy wonks. It's not a very powerful interest group, but but it, it can play a role because it's uh, at least some of the some of the disparate interest groups that make up the Democratic coalition are going to listen to what people like you or I have to say. Um, and then if you ask, well, why are the parties so different? Then I would say that has a lot to do with, uh, with money, with financing. Um, there are... Democratic-leaning billionaires, but they're not uh, the sole, or you know, they're not the dominant source of support. Uh, Republican Party, that are there are small donors, whatever, but the but a lot of that comes, a lot of the it is driven by uh, a small number of very wealthy people, and what that does is it creates, among other things, career incentives. Uh, you know, we have the the term, you know, wing nut welfare. If you are a good, loyal uh, conservative. You can get into Congress, maybe, um, and uh, if you lose, it won't be because probably because you're defeated in the general election, but because of a primary challenger who is even more ideologically pure than you are. But even if you do get lose, uh, then there's a job at a think tank or a, a, a you know a, a commentary job on Fox News for you. Um, all of which creates a very very different incentive. You know, there are economists who uh, have served under Republicans uh, later on move out into into private life and then uh, uh, one way or another or some kind uh, and there are democratic counterparts the Republicans seem to be far more concerned with hewing to the party line than the Democrats think about somebody like Doug Holtz Eakin who by all accounts did a fine job heading the congressional budget office and is now signing you know, letters claiming that tax cuts will largely pay for themselves. And you can't find anyone like that on the Democratic side. And I think it's because, the way I put it in my home field, is that there are three kinds of economists. There are uh, liberal professional economists, there are conservative professional economists, and there are professional conservative economists. And there are very, that fourth box is mostly empty because there just isn't the kind of money behind liberal ideology that there is behind conservative ideology. Uh, um, let me try to push back on this because this feels in this era less true to me. I mean, w when I was uh, starting to pay a lot of attention to politics, there was this view that Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. The Republican Party is hierarchical. It's top down. They, they nominate the next person in line, whereas Democrats, you never know what's going to happen. And over the last, I don't know, 10 years, that feels way less true of the Democratic Party than it does of the Republican Party. The Tea Party insurgency knocked off tons of senior, respected, elected Republicans. Donald Trump destroyed the Republican field to become the Republican nominee. Roy Moore, I mean, 
Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan have some of the worst jobs I can possibly imagine. Not that they cover themselves in glory by the way they do them. God knows they don't. But they get no respect from their base. They get very little respect from their own members. I mean, the things Mitch, I think most Republicans in Alabama say Mitch McConnell's opposition to Roy Moore made them more likely to vote for him. So I, I do take the point the Democratic Party is usually more of an, an interest group coalition and the Republican Party has been um, more philosophically oriented, more ideologically oriented. And I don't mean those terms negatively, but there's something about Given that the Democratic Party is supposedly the more permeable one, less of this kind of nonsense appears to be permeating it. And, and actually, in recent years, it's been a much more establishment-oriented party. Sanders ran a tremendous campaign, but ultimately did not did not beat Hillary Clinton. Um, whereas the Republican Party seems to me to be extremely non-hierarchical. And um, one reason that its key players buy into so much nonsense is they don't seem to me to think that they have the power to stop it. They don't seem to me to believe they can move the votes to, to govern in a more responsible way. They don't seem to me to believe that they have the credibility with their base to say, I'm sorry, birtherism is nonsense. Stop it. Or, you know, um, just don't. Like <laughs> this thing well, you're doing and saying, just don't stop. I think part, um, it, that's a, a good point, but I think part of the answer might be that, that uh, in the past decade or so, the center of gravity of movement conservatism has shifted away from the party to conservative media. I mean, that's, I think, David Frum's line. We used to think that Fox News worked for us. Now it turns out we work for Fox News. And so it's it's still extremely hierarchical in the sense that that you don't dare uh, go against the, the party line, but the party line is actually more now uh, the Fox News line than it is the... Uh, the, the RNC. I'm to some extent you know, doing this for, uh, on the fly, but it's, it's certainly clear that still that a Democrat can deviate from the party mainstream in both directions and still uh, you know, not be um, excommunicated. You can be a little bit more conservative, you can be a bit more liberal, um, that there's, and, and you are going to want to listen to people uh, who who seem to possess some expertise, whereas the Republican challenges have all come from the right. There, there's been, as far as I can make out, no no Republican has lost in a um, in a primary challenger from somebody who says let's be more moderate. Uh, so there, there's, but you know, at at some level, it is. I, you're right that I don't have a full explanation. Um, but I think you, you, you do want to say that I, I, I guess I have some questions about, I know that there are people have tried to show that there's equal openness to new ideas on both sides, uh, among the general public. Um, I'm wondering if that's really true, particularly in the primary voting public. Um, it's, you know, it remains the case that, um, you know, 40% of the cable audience is Fox News. And uh, Fox News is a is a completely different animal from its its rivals, uh, and aren't you know aren't, are we talking about a bunch of angry old men <laughs> who are just not going to be open to discussion in a way that that a lot of the people that uh, Democrats count on? Are we past the point of no return on 
preventing a genuine catastrophe through climate change? Yes, but there are levels and levels of catastrophe. So we're definitely looking at a situation where we're going to be seeing rising sea levels and extraordinary measures having to be taken and uh, and probably massive refugee crises in developing countries. Uh, it's almost surely too late to, uh, to prevent a substantial rise in temperature and everything that goes with that. Now, we're actually agonizingly close to being able to drastically reduce future carbon emissions. Technology has been our friend here. Renewables technology has made huge progress, which is one of the reasons it's it's such a catastrophe that we have the Trump administration, which wants us to go back to coal. Um, but even if we did that, uh, it's it's too late to prevent a lot of damage. But of course, if you continue, if we continue to pump greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, then we we're, we're go beyond simply millions of lives disrupted and, and trillions of dollars lost to, uh, you know, existential civilizational crisis. And uh, I don't think we're at that point yet. That's not unavoidable. Uh, but give us a few years. What is something that, that you believe is true that most people believe is false? Oh, wow. Um, uh, I believe that... Uh, that foreign aid is good and a moral duty. I think that's uh, certainly something most Americans don't uh, don't agree with, or they don't believe they. That I, I believe that we give way too little foreign aid. That would certainly be a deeply unpopular point of view. Uh, and I guess I would probably say that, in terms of economics, uh, closest I can get on this, uh, that incentives matter a lot less than than most of us, than, than the American public has come to believe, that most people will do their jobs and try to do them well, given just you know, a moderate amount of, of financial reward, but out of, uh, out of uh, some sense of self-respect. So I guess I'm, I'm much more of a believer that I don't think a Cuban economy works, but I think we'd be surprised at how much how, how relatively willing people are to, to do what needs to be done without getting lots of money for it. And here's my last question. What are three books that changed your life that you would recommend to others? All right. So I'll start with a funny one, uh, which was Isaac Asimov's Foundation uh, novels, uh, which are you know, the old science fiction in which galactic civilization is collapsing and mathematical social scientists uh, um, plot a way to minimize the dark ages that follow. So that's, I, w I wanted to be one of those guys. So that was my career choice. David Hume, uh, an, an inquiry concerning human understanding. I just learning to be skeptical, learning to be skeptical, not just about religion, but in general to, to say, you know, what, what do we know? How do we know it? That I read that in college and it had a, a huge, um, uh, Huge, huge impact on on uh, basically on my own personal uh, structure of of not, I wouldn't say belief of cognition. How do I think about things? Um, probably it was an old book by uh, William McNeil called Plagues and Peoples. Uh, that was this sort of vast, grand overview of history that 
just said to me, you know, the forces that are actually governing what happens to us are often not the things that are in the headlines. They're not the things people talk about. We don't even notice that things like, uh, you know, Genghis Khan unifies your, most of Eurasia and the result is the Black Death, <laughs> that, that kind of thing. That actually had a, uh, a big impact on my uh, just sort of saying, let's step back. Don't, don't get too wrapped up in, in the personalities and the headlines of the day because there's other stuff that may be far more important that is just completely uh, under your radar. Uh, Paul Krugman, thank you so much for joining me for this orgy of serious policy discussion. Oh, thanks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Thank you to Paul Krugman for being here. That was a lot of fun. Uh, thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, uh, for making this show happen to all of you for tuning into it. The Ezra Clown Show is on the Vox Media Podcast Network, and we'll be back next week. Thank you.